What's up, everybody? Welcome to the newest episode of Demo Day, the podcast for entrepreneurs and venture capitalists where we demystify the culture of joining one of the top accelerator, incubator, or VC programs from around the world. I'm your host, Sean Goldband, CEO of Coefficient Labs, and on today's show, we'll be interviewing Kareem Ali, principal at TomVest Ventures, former investment banking analyst at Deutsche Bank, and a current member of the VC Fund at UCLA. At TomVest Ventures, Kareem focuses on cybersecurity and cloud computing and has already seen two of his investments get acquired by BlackBerry and McAfee. Kareem discusses how to rise up when you're the new hire at a venture capital fund, the importance of continuously educating yourself, and his point of view on gyms, 3.0. Also, Coefficient Labs is giving away a $10,000 growth hacking package for one VC and one founder that leaves a rating and a review on the Apple podcast. So if you're listening to this on podcast or watching it on our website, go check out the Apple podcast, leave us a review, and you have a chance at winning. Without further ado, let's get into demo day. Kareem, thanks so much for joining us on today's episode of Demo Day. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So, uh, Kareem, in today's day and age, um, the names of the venture capital funds, Upfront Ventures, 500 Startups, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, there's so many VC funds that you hear uh, in the press, but sometimes startups can overlook some of the VC funds that aren't always in the press as much or or aren't focused on their PR as much. Um, I wanted this episode to be an opportunity for startups that maybe haven't heard of TomVest before to get to know yourself and learn a bit more about a a VC fund that maybe they haven't heard of. Um, And I think this is a great opportunity for us to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm happy to give a little bit of background on TomVest. So TomVest Ventures, $300 million VC fund based in San Francisco. We used to be down the peninsula up in the Bay Area, um, and we just moved to South Park. So South Park in San Francisco is kind of the new Sand Hill Road, so to speak. Uh, a lot of VCs surrounding that park now. Um, so $300 million fund. The name TomVest comes from Peter Thompson. So he and his family own the majority of Thompson Reuters. We're not a corporate VC. We're not affiliated with Thompson Reuters at all, but uh, it's solely Peter's capital. So one LP, we don't have to fundraise, uh, and we're long-term partners in that way as well. Um, we're pretty verticalized now, so we have a team that does a lot of fintech. Um, so Don Butler and, and the team there, they, uh, they were investors in Lending Club. So far, we're on the board of Cabbage, which is a unicorn. And then I myself partnered with a, a partner uh, on the team, Umesh Padval, and uh, he was at Bessemer for nine years, uh, past CEO of a public company before that, sold it. And uh, we cover a lot of cybersecurity and cloud infrastructure. So a couple of our recent exits last year, actually, we had three in security. We sold um, Silence to BlackBerry for $1.4 billion. We sold Sky High to McAfee, uh, where we had a board seat as well. And then we sold Skyport Systems to Cisco. Uh, and then we have a, a, a pretty large current portfolio as well. That's, that's amazing. And we're going to spend more time uh, later on going into some of these portfolios that you're excited about and, and uh, other elements of TomVest. I think for the viewers here or, or, or listeners, uh, for those listening on the podcast that maybe have never heard of you before, uh, Kareem, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your, you know, your background? Um, uh, interesting side note, guys, and we'll talk a little bit about this. Uh, before Kareem was at, uh, uh, before Kareem was at, uh, 
Tom Best, sorry, my bad. Before Kareem was at Tom Best, he was at Deutsche Bank. And when he was 23, 24 years old, was actually involved in helping manage and oversee uh, and advise Dell in a, over, I think it was a $63 billion acquisition. Yep, yep. Um, so Kareem is someone for anyone that's an early, you know, uh, student in finance and economics. I was thinking too, it would be a really great opportunity to talk to maybe some students that are thinking about going into the banking world or the venture capital world. And, and we can get a little bit more about that. Tell us about what was early life like for you? Where'd you grow up? Uh, what was life like, uh, for you as a kid? Yeah, definitely. So, so I grew up in Downey, California, uh, about 30 minutes from here. Uh, down here in SoCal, and uh, and my dad was a retired chemist, so um, obviously was always trying hard in school. Ended up going to UCLA, and started off as a pre med student. Um, we, my dad and I, we've always had an affinity for the sciences, and was kind of going through the motions. Was doing well, but didn't really feel like my heart was in the right place. Um, started thinking about long term prospects. Okay, I'm gonna come out of school at age 32. I'm gonna have like 200k of debt. Uh, just wasn't sure it was the right decision. And so that was pretty late in the game. That was the end of sophomore year where I started thinking about that. Um, kind of sat down with my parents and thought, okay, uh, what next? Or, or what classes did I really enjoy in the past where I might be able to switch to in terms of major? And the one that kept coming back to mind was AP Econ back in high school. And so I, I don't know why, I just love supply and demand charts. I just, I get them. And, and I took Econ 1 kind of on a whim didn't take, uh, I basically, basically stopped taking chem, physics, and, and all the, the pre-med classes, took Econ 1 on a whim with a couple of GEs. That was the first textbook I read front to back and thoroughly loved it, Professor Sproul, UCLA. Um, and ended up switching my major to Biz Econ at that point, Business Economics. And so then I was like, okay, well, it's late in the game. Uh, what career can I, can I kind of stem from this major? And so started talking to some folks, got involved in the business club, Basically, the, the two career prospects that a lot of people talk about and that, that come to mind naturally are either investment banking or consulting. And so I, I started just cold emailing like a bunch of firms, probably 50 firms, just because I knew I had to start getting some internships on, on my resume. I was, a, I was a pre-med student. There was no way any of these big banks were going to take me. And so I, I got a couple internships. Um, I, I think I had like three out of the 50 reply and, and I ended up getting one um, and just you know, kept building on that. Went through the investment banking recruiting cycle, got a couple offers. One of them was Deutsche Bank in San Francisco with their TMT group. Generally, at UCLA, there, there weren't a ton of kids getting offers in San Francisco. Um, a lot of the banks up there recruit from Stanford and Berkeley, naturally. And, uh, and also down here in LA, well, when I was graduating and, and during that year, which was 2013, my junior year when I was recruiting, tech and VC wasn't really big at UCLA or in LA in general. Um, it seems like it's really in the last year or two with the the UCLA accelerator program, but um, they certainly are making a much bigger push now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, and so I was kind of talking to, to some older guys at, at UCLA who had been through the process and who were starting their full time offers in banking and said, "Hey, I got this offer from Deutsche Bank, their TMT tech banking group. Basically, um, what do you guys think?" And everyone's like, "Wow, like no one's really gotten that. Like you should go for it." And I started reading TechCrunch and getting more into it, and I was like, this does seem really cool. And so it was kind of serendipitous, and, uh, and at the same time, I was a little bit scared because I had grown up in L.A. my whole life, went to school in L.A. I wasn't really sure if I should do it, and I was like, okay, let's do it. So 10-week summer internship, went there, uh, enjoyed the team, enjoyed what I was doing, 
came back senior year and then and then went full-time to db what's life like bring us into the world's working at for one of the best and biggest banks you know uh, i think one of the things we're trying to get out of this podcast is especially for the college student the freshman sophomore junior, this, you know that are listening and trying right now to decide should i be an entrepreneur should i be a number two and an operations guy what was it like working at deutsche bank um for those that maybe are thinking about that yeah so so looking back on it um, if you're going into investment banking, you know that generally it's going to be a two-year stint or a little less. A lot of people are leaving around, you know, the 18-month mark or so. Um, but it's a great stepping stone because it opens up a ton of doors. So, so it opens up VC doors. It opens up hedge funds if you're into that. Private equity. You can go to big tech. You can go to startups. I mean, just the opportunities that, that arise after doing investment banking are, are plenty. So, so that was why I did it, and, uh, and it was definitely worth it. Um, what are some of the words of caution? If you kind of looking at it now from an outside perspective, what would you caution some of the newer people maybe thinking about getting into it? Yeah, so there are pros and cons. I mean, if, if you have a little bit more risk appetite, then maybe banking isn't for you. It's, it's, it's risk averse. Uh, you know you're going to be making a good amount of money right out of college. Um, you know, if you can't handle intense, uh, uh, you know, work-life balance or, or lack thereof, it might not be for you. Um, to be honest, I was working a lot of nights and a lot of weekends. Um, I, actually, my first summer there, uh, it was funny. Like, like summer just came and went, and I didn't actually really enjoy summer. But, but looking back, it was worth it because I got to work on a lot of deals, and I got that, that M&A and, and deep investment banking, both on the capital and debt side. Uh, or equity and debt side, sorry, uh, experience. And, and so that was, that was really how I was thinking about it. Obviously, now I have a lot more friends who are thinking about consulting, about startups, about a lot of different paths. Um, and there's no right or wrong. I mean, there's pros and cons to all of it, but that was kind of how I was thinking about it. And I knew it was going to be a stepping stone. It was going to be a grind for a year and a half to two years, uh, but something good was going to come out of it. And, and kind of transitioning a little bit, that's, as VC goes, it's, it's, a pretty niche industry in the way it works in terms of recruiting in that it's very network heavy, networking heavy, network heavy, et cetera. So basically my former colleague at Deutsche Bank was good friends with, uh, with someone who was working at Tom Vest at the time from school, et cetera. So um, she kind of mentioned, hey, we're looking for an associate. Raised my hand, went through the process. I was fortunate enough to, to land that. But um, that's kind of how it works. Whereas like private equity and a lot of other industries, you get, you get headhunters, you get um, cold callers, et cetera, to actually come recruit you. So, so VC is very network heavy in that sense. Whereas you're saying banking is a little bit more the school you went to, the grades that, that um, yeah, it's much more you, structured. When you were at Deutsche Bank and, and this, this question applies both to Deutsche Bank and Tomvest, but specifically at Deutsche Bank, did you have a mentor or did you have anyone that was specifically kind of helping you navigate that, that process of your life? Yeah, Deutsche Bank, I had a couple, and, and, and I have a, a really strong mentor now, Tom Vest as well, but, but I'll kind of bifurcate those. At, at Deutsche Bank, I had a couple, um, Sudesh Vasudevan, he, he's a manager, managing director at Evercore now, at an, another investment bank. He was, he was pretty critical in my development. We worked on a lot of deals together. We worked day and night on, uh, on an Ancestry.com dividend recap, uh, which, which oh, that was the death of me, but uh, great experience, great learning experience. And, and he was in the model, deep in the weeds. We are working late nights, early mornings, and, and he was critical to my development. Um, a couple other guys, Joe Ayers, he's at Lazard now. He was, he was super helpful in everything I was doing, a great mentor. Brad Kinnish um, was, was a director there at the time. So, 
So a bunch of people are helpful, honestly. So, so I think that what's really cool about venture capital in general is that, um, you know, not all VCs are mentors or advise startups, but many of them do, um, offer mentorship, um, whether it's, um, you know, um, like whether it is, uh, paid for or given equity or just out of the kindness of their heart for the, you know, the culture of the ecosystem, what advice do you have for other VCs that are mentors themselves? What, uh, what did you learn from your good mentors that could be shared with others? Um, I think, I think VC is pretty saturated now where there are probably a lot of good mentors and, and mentorship is probably just table stakes at this point. But um, I think being genuine, first and foremost, if you actually care about someone and, and care about their development, I, what I like to do personally is, is I only invest in maybe a handful of companies per year, but I look at and check out a bunch of companies per year. So, so even if I don't invest, like if I can have a relationship with the CEO or the founders and, and if they have questions or, or if it's even like up and coming UCLA students who are thinking about starting a company or thinking about getting into VC, I'll have calls with them. So any way where I can kind of, uh, you know, give feedback and, and return the favor and, and pay it forward a little bit, um, I'm always happy to do so. So, you know, on this podcast, we have principals, we have associates, we have managing partners. Uh, for those that are on more of the associate and just getting into the game, um, you know, you're, you are someone that not just at Deutsche Bank, but also at Tomvest have been able to rise through the ranks at a very young age. Um, what advice do you have for those um, that are in similar positions and maybe don't have the same natural uh, charisma that, that you do? Um, and, and so, so are you suggesting um, students or, or, or young folks that are coming out of investment banking, like myself, or, or other routes? Uh, I would say I think in uh, all routes. So you find yourself at a VC fund. You're this fresh, new face at a VC fund. How do you make yourself um, valuable, and how do you rise through the ranks without stepping on toes, without overstepping your boundary? I could imagine it was a very new place for you to be in. Yeah, that's a great question. There, there are a lot of soft skills that you need to develop early on if you're going to do well here. Um, first and foremost, you, you got to understand uh, the paradigm within your specific VC firm. So, what kind of culture is this? Um, how much do partners want to take ownership over specific investments? How much uh, of the job is sourcing versus diligence for you? Um, I realized early on that, that it was going to be most beneficial to not specifically look for investments for myself, but to look for investments that were kind of in the best interest of Tomvest. And so that's where, back to your original question about mentorship, Umesh Padval, who I work with all the time, we're, we're basically a tag team in security and cloud infrastructure, um, he's been a tremendous mentor, friend, partner in crime, whatever word you want to put there. Um, but I realized early on that he was going to be a tremendous help and, and benefit and, and, and utility for me in, in VC. And it was going to serve in my best interest to work with him, not, not in my own interest. And so that's kind of how we formed it. And it's worked tremendously well, given the exits recently and, and our current investments as well. Um, additionally, I'd say just during evenings, if you can, um, go to as many events as possible. I, a lot of people get burnt out. I, I got a little burnt out from networking as well in, in my first year or so. Um, but it's, it's extremely helpful because you need some sort, of, some sort of deal flow or pipeline coming in. And you don't know enough entrepreneurs initially to have that deal flow. But if you're going to these, these events where it's probably some entrepreneurs and some investors, you're meeting a lot of people at different companies, whether it's startups, VC firms, whatever. And you can use them to say, hey, like, 
I'll throw you this deal, which I know I'm probably not interested in given I only do security, but hey, it's, it's e-commerce, it's Series A. I know that's your sweet spot. I'll throw that to you. And then, hey, maybe in return, you can throw me something that's more in my favor. So it's a very mutually beneficial two-way street, the VC community. Um, and that's how I've approached it. And that's worked pretty well. I think that's so interesting. And, and I think that events have a really bad rap because you do, you know, there is a lot of just handing out business cards and a lot of, you know, smiles and saying hi. But I think, you know, we right now, uh, Coefficient Labs going to two, three events a week, both VC and founder specific. And the thing that I have learned the most about them is the familiar faces you tend to see. So when you first start going to the a couple events, everyone is totally new. You're like, oh my gosh, I don't know who I should talk to. Right. But the more events you go to, you're like, oh, hey, Tom, hey, Billy, hey, Jared, like, mm -hmm. you know, hey, Catherine, great to see you. Um, and then once you're at the 7, 8, 10, 12, 15, you're like, now you're actually building these relationships. And, and I think that, um, you know, for those of you that absolutely hate networking and really, you know, just despise it, you know, getting over that hump and letting yourself go to five, six, seven, just notice the people that you're seeing week over week, because as Kareem mentioned, the world of VC, the world of startups is so relationship focused. And I always say that like, there's almost this unspoken, like a, like a spit agreement or something that like, when you go to an event, everyone else there knows like this person got off their ass, they went there on a Thursday night, just like me. And it kind of puts you in you know, it, on that same wavelength. So um, that's really interesting. You I talked agree about with that. Events. I agree with that. And I'll also add that, that the more you see these people, the more comfortable you get with them and the more they just become your friends versus just colleagues or, or people in your network. And I mean, I, I went to Japan uh, around Christmas slash New Year's timeframe with another VC buddy who I just met a few months back, but we've become very close now and we're, we're surfing now. And, and those relationships form within, within a lot of those networking events where you could easily just go home and not go to those. So, so I think in your first 12 months uh, after joining as an associate, that's pretty critical. And that's, that's what I tell all the associates who join our firm too. At Tombest, uh, now you guys, not that you're a traditional VC, but I think like the hot item and really like what founded this podcast is this idea of vent uh, of accelerator programs and accelerators, um, accelerators and incubator programs like the 500 startups, like the tech stars, where um, there's this, you know, kind of all of these startups that are going into these programs that are looking to take the next step. And, and I think that, um, you know, at, at this level, uh, getting, getting VC money today, you know, there's a lot of people writing small $20,000 checks, but I feel, and this is just a personal, like it's a lot harder today to start moving into, you know, bigger checks. What are the sorts of qualities that you look for in, in winning teams? Yeah, so, so I'd say background is probably um, the number one thing. So, so what have you done previously? If you're a first-time entrepreneur uh, straight out of undergrad without any experience, it's going to be tough. Mm -hmm. just, just laying that out there. Um, in security specifically, for example, if you've worked at Palo Alto Networks and McAfee and Trend Micro and, and you, you maybe have sold a company before already, like, that's an easier one, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it's a spectrum, obviously. Let's talk about the just out of school. The you know they don't have necessarily uh, previous companies. What what excites you, right? You meet someone you know they're young. What's the sort of KPI or metrics that you're looking for that actually get you excited? Yeah, so so it's gonna be uh, the way they articulate the idea, um, how much I believe in the idea, and and probably what I just think about the market in general. Um, so I mean. We've met companies where it's 
a couple co-founders straight out of undergrad with no experience. And initially you think, okay, like there's no way they're going to get funded. But then when you talk to them, you're like, yeah, like that's a way better business idea than the legacy incumbent that exists today. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, maybe, maybe you guys won't succeed as well as, you know, maybe the 35 or 40 year old team who's, who's been there, done that, but maybe you can get it up and running and, and we can recruit some, some CTO or COO or whatever and, and kind of strengthen your team along the way. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I mean, if the idea makes sense and, and we're bullish on it and we think, uh, you know, it's following some sort of secular trend. Mm. Yeah, we're probably in. Do you, uh, one of the things I've learned from talking to different VC funds is that some VC funds are all about the better mousetrap. You know, like if there's an old legacy business and you have a better uh, solution to that problem, we'll invest. Whereas others are more like looking for the future AI. And um, where uh, where does Tomvest find uh, yourselves? And, and who are the types of companies that are the best fit? Yeah, I'd say I'd say we actually play on both of those levels, um, but that's a great question. I, I think a lot of VCs do bifurcate and, and only do one or, or the other, and, and it's basically a greenfield versus brownfield question. I think it also varies by sector. So, in security, for example, it's a lot of brownfield. Like, can you describe brownfield versus greenfield? Oh yeah, yeah. So so greenfield is is anything where where players don't exist already. Um, there isn't a legacy incumbent that you're trying to disrupt. You're actually just trying to create something brand new. So. Apple's probably like the best case of that. So, so everything they've always tried to do is something that hasn't existed before. So they're trying to be kind of the future of what they think consumers want. In security, for example, um, there's like next-gen firewalls, but that's just like the next generation of something that already exists in firewalls. So uh, I won't dive into the deep te- details of that, but like Symantec and, and a lot of those guys already exist today. And so with these newer companies, they're basically trying to claim that their tech is better and you know, call it 10x or, or whatever times better, and their team is going to be able to disrupt the legacy model. And and there are a lot of ways they can do that. I mean, there are a lot of trends also they, they can take advantage of. I mean, we're always looking at trends. So so one is like, you know, uh, working remotely or telecommuting. So like, what's going on there? We're, we're not investing in that, but like, that's something I have an eye on just personally. Um, so any company's doing something around that, like, that's probably going to be interesting. Um, Which is probably like, why another reason, and I'm just projecting, I don't know, another reason that you are uh, rising through the ranks and doing so well is that you sort of have your eye on what's important, but you're also playing a little bit in some of the spaces outside of the main mix. And I think just like keeping your eye on what else is outside is an interesting thought. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I, I do a lot of security and cloud infrastructure, but I'm not an engineer by nature. And so those first six months of TomVest when I got basically thrown into that, uh, that was a steep learning curve. And I spent a lot of time just reading reports and research and talking to people and talking to CISOs who, who have done security for 10, 20 years. And I felt like, okay, I have a good grasp on it now. I'm still not an expert by any means. Maybe I'll never become an expert, but I'm good enough where I can make investments now and make bets. And so far, so good. But at the same time, um, I do have a lot of interest in other things. I mean, I look at health and wellness a ton and, and fitness, and I think that's probably a space that's going to get disrupted massively. Um, I mean, is being disrupted is for sure. Being disrupted yeah. now, yeah. And 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 there are waves of disruption in fitness. I mean, there's there's kind of like fitness 1.0 to 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, and I can go into detail on those. And and 4.0 right now is basically in home streaming and Peloton. Even though I don't use it, and and I probably wouldn't buy it, and I'm not a big fan of in home streaming, the business model itself is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. I mean, two thousand dollars a bike plus tax. You're paying twenty two hundred upfront sunk cost just for a bike. Of course, you're not going to churn 40 bucks a month for the subscription. 
like, yeah, it, of course it's going to get to $300 million of revenue. So it's funny too, like on that point, there's a lot of groupthink where VCs won't touch a model like that for various reasons. Like, like you know, there's, it's, a, it's not a software, high gross margin play, which is what a lot of people want, less capital intensive, et cetera. Um, but if you can get out of the box and get out of that groupthink a little bit and try to think, okay, where are these trends going? Like what can be big? I think that's where you, you can make lucrative bets. So what's so revolutionary? Are you saying that they, by by creating a barrier of that 2000, like the, the high barrier at the beginning, it almost makes it so that people aren't going to churn out of the monthly? No, not as much that. I think, I, I just think there are very um, niche customer segments you can target within fitness. Mm. So, so, I mean, might as well just dive into it now. Sure, like, like, please. Yeah, Gym 1.0 in my mind was was legacy, old school, Gym Grind it out gyms. Yeah. yeah. Gym membership. So, so uh, let's get a bunch of customers. Let's hope they, they never come <laughs> and let's just reap their, their whatever, $40 a month uh, subscription. Gym 2.0 was that uh, with price differentiation. So, so still lackadaisical employees at the front desk. They don't know your name. It's, it's still treadmills. It's still, it's still um, old school dumbbells, et cetera. But now we have $10 a month for Planet Fitness, target the low end. Now we got $300 a month for Equinox, target the high end. So, so now we're starting to see a little bit of discrimination and differentiation, which is good. Um, Gym 3.0 was basically what, what I, I try to use a lot today, but it's still a little expensive, is, is berries, core power, soul cycle. So it's these, these community-type classes, collegial, familial vibes, um, energetic instructors, uplifting music, et cetera. So, so that works only until you get to gym 4.0. And that's why SoulCycle had to sell themselves and, and they got bought by Equinox and, and the founders made a ton of money, but they had to cancel their IPO twice because they got disrupted by Peloton. And so that's where I think that business model, back to your question, it's not that that they're, they're excluding people from coming in or anything like that. I, I think it's just that if you're targeting someone who's paying 2,000 bucks right, up, right off the bat, they're not going to stop paying $40 a month. That's a drop in the bucket for them. So that's why I think that business model makes sense. And you can target price insensitive, price inelastic customers, which there obviously are a ton of, especially on the west side of LA. And you can, you can specifically target those, those customer segments. That's really interesting. I thought you were going to talk uh, about ClassPass and one of the .0s because that, that was a, a very, you know, that's uh, pretty unique to be able to just go in, but um, I think... Well, I'll, I'll touch on them. Sure, Cla- ClassPass yeah, yeah. is basically in the 3.0 space. So, okay. so they were offering SoulCycle and Berries and Core Power all as part of their offering. Um, but I actually, I actually have mixed feelings about them. I, I stopped using them because um, I just wasn't a big fan of the model. I, I, think, I think they'll do well. Um, but if you're paying whatever, 15 bucks a month for one class... Mm-hmm. It's just not enough. Like you want a little more. And they then, changed a lot, right? Like they started out and, and they eventually the model just wasn't working for them. And I think they had to kind of pivot their way out and, and then it, it ended up affecting the user. Agree. And then and then also the unit economics are tough there. So so you're paying eighty bucks a month for whatever, five classes, but you can only use two on a given studio. So I can only do like two berries. Where like for mm-hmm. me, like I'd, I'd rather just do five. And that's why I would use it, because it's cheaper than actually doing five berries. So um there are issues with that model, but I mean, obviously they have a ton of customers and, and no knock on them. So the this conversation started um, by t- talking about keeping your eye sometimes a little bit outside of what mm-hmm. your core is, especially uh, in VC. Let's get back to the core. So if I'm a startup, whether I'm a student and a first-time founder, or maybe I'm a later stage, but I've never heard of Tomvest, 
who are the types of companies you know um that that should be reaching out should be looking out and 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 seeing and learning more about you guys yeah so we're pretty verticalized today um we built our brand off fintech so so i mentioned some of the companies earlier um we're now doing a ton in real estate and prop tech which is tangential so so we got a, a team doing both of those sectors pretty extensively if you're doing anything in that sector reach out to us um, I obviously do a lot of security and cloud infrastructure. If you're doing anything there, reach out to us. I'm doing a pretty extensive blockchain research project right now. Just started about a month ago. What's your thoughts on blockchain since, because I, I feel like there is sort of um, the mainstream knowledge of blockchain, which is it like basically, I don't want, it, it's not that it didn't exist, but it was nothing. Then all of a sudden, every one of your friends had a, you know, a crypto or Ethereum. And then it sort of has taken a little bit of a, its, um, you know, hiatus. Almost, we have the VR, uh, the HTC Vive is in our office. We haven't used it. And what's going on with Bitcoin these days, or I'm sorry, with crypto these days and just blockchain in general? Yeah, so so I'm not an expert. I just started my research about a month ago, but, but my high level thoughts are, um, I'm pro-decentralization. I, I think it makes a lot of sense to disintermediate a lot of those middlemen, uh, trustees, agents, et cetera, and, and you, can, you can take a cut off of that cost that you're saving for, for consumers or, or buyers. Um, I think additionally, uh, there, there are a lot of companies out there claiming to do blockchain and crypto uh, in various industries, and so there's still a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I mean, it's pretty much consensus now, but it's it's generally a good thing to see a correction. And, and that's what we saw in 2017 and, and to an extent still now. I mean, prices are still still very depleted. So um, that allows kind of the hype to fade a little bit and these developers to work on their actual projects, which we like, so that hopefully in the next bull run and the next upcoming of, of these companies, we've kind of churned away some that probably aren't going to work. We've honed in on the better teams. And in theory, this technology actually ends up working in a few years. Without putting you on the spot, are there any blockchain startups right now or companies that you're excited about? So I haven't I haven't looked at a ton to be honest. Uh, I just started looking. I mean, there's a bunch in the Bay Area mm -hmm. that I won't name, and then you know, given that I'm in LA this week doing the LA trip uh, that that Thomas does annually, um, I mean, I looked at Everettpedia. That, that's that's an awesome company. Um, I mean, just a little bit of background on them, just high level. Uh, I, I just met with them on Tuesday, but but I think they're really cool. It's it's three co-founders out of UCLA. They're they're um, mining basically uh, mining crypto to pay for tuition, and then came across this idea of like, okay, so Wikipedia exists, um, but there's no real business model. Like they don't make any actual money, um, and so people are adding articles and adding revisions to the articles, and someone has to approve or deny those revisions, and even the article itself initially. And I actually. <laughs> So, so a little bit of a tangent, but um, what I do at Tomvest generally is, is three things. It's, it's source companies that we want to invest in. It's due diligence on companies that either I or partners bring in. And then it's support portfolio companies. So one thing I was doing in supporting portfolio companies, that bucket, was uh, I was creating a Wikipedia for one of our portfolio companies, Avalanche Technology. And uh, it ended up getting like denied basically at the very end after four months of waiting. And so like... <laughs> There's just something innately wrong with the Wikipedia model. Like, there's no incentive really for a lot of people to to use it, to revise it, to approve or deny the revisions. What these guys are doing is basically at a high level is if you can add some sort of economic model to that, mm -hmm. where people who are adding articles, uh, adding revisions that are you know beneficial to the articles, and then also approving those revisions quickly, faster than a four month wait time. Uh, all three of those stakeholders can 
in theory, take a, a divisible amount of that token mm-hmm. and reap an economic benefit. And so that's what they're trying to do is build a decentralized Wikipedia that adds and an get this, model. And I would imagine too, somehow get like the social proof or validation that like this person was the one that made that edit and it kind of could exactly. go in. And right. it's immutable and, and you have all of those transactions forever and you can track down the person who made that random comment or like the guy who just keeps adding one space as his revision and like trying to reap economic stake. Like you can just track that person down and like ban them. So yeah, I think that's one that I just looked at and I was like, that makes a lot of sense. Have you noticed anything, you know, because I mean, it's really interesting. You're, you grew up or, or at least um, are from LA or the Cal, you know, Southern California. Yeah. Now you're living up North, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, the Mecca of all VC and, and all uh, really startup culture. What's it like when you come back down to LA? We, as I'd mentioned, go to a couple events a week in this, the hashtag long LA and, and just like the overall, um, focus on just this industry of VC in LA. What are your thoughts on Los Angeles as an ecosystem here? And uh, yeah, just give us your point of view. Yeah. I mean, it's growing. That's for sure. Uh, When I was going to UCLA, there wasn't much of an ecosystem, to be honest. Uh, I I don't think many of my friends, if any, even knew what VC was. And so um, I think that's, that's probably an effect of a few things. But I mean, I went to school with the two Draper sons, sons of Tim Draper, um, Billy's obviously at Draper Associates. Adam is is the co-founder of Boost VC, and so um, I actually just had Adam uh, do a, a fireside chat at UCLA. So so just kind of getting back into the community of LA, having chats with students, things like that. Um, I think the ecosystem is is growing on a lot of levels. I think you could argue that the crypto and blockchain community here is comparable to the Bay Area version. I think Asia is doing more than both uh, uh, LA and SF in general, but that, that's a whole nother topic. But um, yeah, I think it's growing. And, and, and I think there are still uh, niche areas that need to be filled. So, so one that I think makes a ton of sense is there's no real growth equity brand name down here. So, so okay, like there are a ton of angel and incubator funds and, and seed funds and even some series A and early stage guys. And we know most of them. And they'll invest at seed and A and then maybe at the B. And then if it's a, a company that's really taken off at C, they're kind of going to the, the typical brand names up in the Bay Area for mm-hmm. that late stage funding. I kind of wish there was just a big brand name in LA that could do that, where, where they don't need to go up to the Bay and do that. So, so that would help the LA ecosystem if, if some sort of growth brand name could exist. Um, but it's not easy. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, they were talking about that. at I believe it was Quaker Backstage's event last week or a couple of days ago just around you know, the, the ecosystem of getting more Snapchats, getting more Pinterest, getting more of these companies. Uh, we need more investors like you're talking about that are a little on the later stage. Um, cool. Well, Kareem, uh, this was an amazing podcast and I really appreciate you jumping on with us. Uh, where can people find you, whether it's startups or VCs or anyone that wants to get to know you guys better, where should they go to turn? Yeah, TomBest.com, Kareem at TomBest, my LinkedIn. You guys can find me. Okay, okay, great. Uh, Thanks a lot, Kareem. We really appreciate you, man. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, Thank you, guys. Uh, From all of us at Demo Day, thank you so much for tuning in. Much love. Peace. Next on Demo Day. Generally, investors don't like that. You could do it, but I would advise not to. One person needs to be leading the vision and execution of all this. 